I'm thinking something like. Well, I kind of like forgot that you were in Mexico. I know, you were like, like, are you alive? Is she okay? Why is she not responding? Something's going on. (laughs) Honestly, that felt, I was like, oh, it's nice to have someone to care about you and be like, are you dead? I did. (laughs) It's really nice. Something's wrong. She's not responding. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And so I went and looked at your Instagram. I was like, there's no stories on Instagram. (laughs) She's been kidnapped. That's when I, right after that, I was like, are you okay? Yeah, I really made a conscious effort. I was like, sorry. (laughs) I made a conscious effort not to be on my phone. No, I think that's awesome. Yeah. Did you have fun though? I did. Did you get rejuvenated? Oh, girl. I had like eight hours of sleep or more every night. I did aqua Zumba. I did aqua aerobics. What? I got a massage on the beach. Mm. It was amazing. That sounds fun. It was, I'm so grateful for it. And honestly, our guest today mentioned like, she mentions like taking time like, uh, for herself. So we talk with Jade Adgate today, Mm -hmm. death doula. So good. Oh gosh. I didn't want her to leave, dude. I know. I was like a puppy. You were like, I'll walk you out. And I was like, I want to (laughs) come. I know. But then I was like, I wouldn't want, I would cry if she left. (laughs) So I was like, I'll just stay up here. She was really, her energy from the time she walked in was just like welcoming and sweet. And she. And grounded. The words she talked like had power to them. Yes. And, and, and energy to them. And you could feel the um, weight doesn't feel like the right word. It just the magnitude and importance. Fullness, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it never felt like too much, Mm-mm. you know, yeah. it, it was just really good. She listened and like looked you in your eyes and mm-hmm. like, oh, I love a person that can linger. You know what I'm yes. saying? <laughs> yes. She like, I would just be feeling and she would be feeling and she, we could just linger in the eyes. And I'm like, yeah. oh, mm-hmm. well, think about what she does. Oh yeah, she yeah. Li- yeah. So this our guest is a death doula, mm-hmm. um, or what was the other dead death midwife? M- mid yeah midwife. Mm-hmm. Um, that I Googled and found because mm-hmm. that's the topic that we, we both are interested in. And so she came and it was delightful. It was delightful. And yeah. What stood out most to you? Um, oh, wow. Well, I want to finish my thought before. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, we, but we <laughs> went on this together. We did this together. Okay. <laughs> um, it's late. <laughs> yeah. She was talking about how she lights a candle after someone passes for three days and yes. it reminds her it forces her to stay home and stay Mm -hmm. grounded and reminds her that like, um, you need time, you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? And that's like, that really spoke to me because coming back from not using my phone, I Mm -hmm. I felt this anxiety of like, well now I'm back in the mix, Mm -hmm. you know? And how do I ease back into it? Cause I love what I do. I love making content. I love being on Instagram, whatever, but it was kind of like a rocky Mm -hmm. thing. Um, so that was nice to hear the thing that stuck with me. I don't know if I want to give it away, but, um, a little sneaky sneak. Um, Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. When she said that like one of her favorite things to do is after someone has passed, she'll sit with them and like wash their body and thank them for mm-hmm. like 
letting them her hold her hand and mm-hmm. you know giving with her arms and stuff like that and in the shoulders with uh, what you carried yes yeah. and just like and she said death doesn't if she she was like if i could just give a drop it droplet of wisdom to people mm-hmm. is that death doesn't have to be fast and rushed yes. Mm-hmm. I was like, that is news to me. Yeah. That is a new perspective mm-hmm. that I am in love with. Yeah. And yeah, when she was talking about the, um, how you, how you live is going to be part of how you die and like the expectations we tend to have around what that might look like. But I think she said like, if they like Coke, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're having a Coke, then they're, maybe they're just knitting and having a, a Coke. <laughs> right. You know, right. Um, and yeah, it, she normalized it very well. She did. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful conversation. Yeah. You're going to be in love with it. Mm-hmm. You're going to listen to it again. I'm talking to myself now. <laughs> I'm d- Even if you feel a little uncomfortable with the topic of death, mm-hmm. um, that's why we asked her to come is so that we can create some conversations because we need to talk about some of the stuff that's uncomfortable. It might lead to some really beautiful things. She talked about just death being um, nourishing. Yeah, you know, and I, it, yeah, just the way she talked about it, it is a, um, it's a moment our spirit has into whether it's you are the one going through it or your family or getting to witness it in the way that she does it. It always has something to teach us. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm gonna, I'm, I could keep just naming the right, things she said, right. but I don't, I want to leave that for the listener to mm-hmm. to have. To, it was a, it was a great mm-hmm. gift to be able to meet her mm-hmm. and and the you the listener. You're going to love it. I enjoy it. Yeah. And, and be in the uncomfortable for a minute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You'll like it. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad to be here with both of you. Yeah. yeah. Me too. I'm so excited about this conversation. Mm. I've been looking forward to it. How did you guys find I me? I Googled. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm in the whole death and dying thing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's a phase of my life I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> the same. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and yeah, so I got really into it. And then I was like, told her, I was like, what about this? She's like, yeah, that sounds so cool. And so I sent, I found you. That's awesome. And sent her the link. Yeah. And she made it happen. I love it. <laughs> Instantly, yeah. Melanie was like, I like this person's vibe. She seems cool. Yeah. Okay, good. I like y'all's vibe. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I listened to the podcast that you did with Cecilia Marie. Yes. Oh, I can't think of her last name. The Grief. Anderson. Anderson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you guys started off, you were saying something about how we don't have enough conversations about death and end of life. And I was like, hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <You> <laughs> were <foreshadowing>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you're a death doula mm-hmm. or death midwife. Mm-hmm. You like to like interchange us. I'm curious, like when you say that to people, yeah. what's the, how do they react? What's the first thing they say? Mm-hmm. It depends on the person and the context. Usually they say deaf. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, no. Like, so what did you say? Yeah, now I kind of circle and I say, I work with people at end of life. Mm. Yeah. And that kind of gives me a judge. Are they going to shut it down or mm-hmm. do they want to go a little deeper? Uh-huh. And then if they want to go a little deeper, they'll say, usually with hospice. Yeah. Mm. They'll say sometimes, but not always. Mm-hmm. Um, I try and have an elevator pitch and I encourage other death doulas and midwives Mm -hmm. to have your elevator pitch because you'd be surprised who reaches out and is open to having a conversation. Yeah. You know, like the guidance counselor at the school, like she saw, Mm -hmm. you know, death midwife on my signature and she was like, can I talk to you after my child's Mm -hmm. 504? So it's like just using it (laughs) and like bringing it up in conversation, just having that 
you know, yeah. the elevator pitch. Will you give us your elevator pitch? Because okay. there's plenty of people, yeah. I'm sure they're listening, that aren't familiar with what that is. Yeah. So just like a birth doula or a birth midwife ushers in new life, a death doula, death midwife, helps people receive death at end of life. Mm-hmm. So mostly I support people who are dying and their caregivers. Um, I also do a lot of community death education things mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. and try and encourage conversations about death and grief in our everyday world. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think what really pushed it for me, that was perfectly explained. I explained it. I compared it to a birth doula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, but at the other end of our life. And, but I work with psychedelic medicine, and so that brings this stuff forward more. Yeah. And I went to a training for end-of-life care in psychedelics, and they constantly talked about the idea of dying well. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why are we not trying to understand and make sense of this stuff earlier on so we can live well with this information as well instead of waiting to the mm-hmm. end, instead of that, you know, these scary things around death will, will be a catalyst for us for that to happen. Yeah. But the more we can have, I think that's probably where that converse or that comment I made around we don't talk about this stuff enough was probably on the heels of going to that. Um, so I'm just like fascinated and thankful um, that you do what you do because I imagine it's difficult and rewarding and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And I just I want to know all about you and what you do. Yeah. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> well, I'm interested in the psychedelics. Um, I haven't studied it, but I do have a few colleagues who have really focused a lot of time and attention mm-hmm. into psychedelics for end of life. Yeah, and I actually had so death midwifery in Nashville is slowly growing. It's just now starting to gain a little momentum. Mm-hmm. I had someone call me to interview me. She was interviewing all of the death midwives. Mm-hmm. She had a terminal diagnosis and she needed support. And she was about to go participate in a psychedelic study for fear of death mm-hmm. at Emory University. So there's definitely stuff happening mm-hmm. here, which it feels hard to believe because things are so static in Nashville. I feel like Nashville's like a buttoned up old auntie. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like you can't say anything cutting edge or do Mm -hmm. anything risky, you know, but I think there's some trends that are changing a little. Yeah. And I think you tell me it would I would think people more at the end of life, Mm -hmm. they're more open to trying things. They're like, what do we got to lose at this point? And they're more open, I think, to those things too. Young people, Mm. not older people. I don't know. I guess Mm -hmm. it depends. So my work is weird in that, I mean, all of it can be very unusual, but it can be weird in that I don't always get calls from people themselves. So it's not usually someone with a terminal diagnosis. It's almost always the adult child who is the caregiver. Seven out of 10 times, it's the oldest daughter who is now having to care for her dying parent. And usually when someone reaches out to a deaf midwife for support, they are exhausted and they are isolated and they are overwhelmed. Yeah. So bringing in some of the kind of cutting edge stuff, it's usually not the place for it. It's mm-hmm. more about just doubling down on community care, on offering companionship and education, on supporting people so they can take care of themselves. Because ultimately the person who's dying is really going to want to be cared for yeah. by their loved one. Mm-hmm. So how do we support the loved one? So that they can care for the dying person. And take care of themselves as well. And at take the same care time. of themselves as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. So you, you're kind of supporting the system, not just the person. 
like their the system is there in place with them. Sometimes. Sometimes. The system is really broken in death care. Yeah. And that's why death midwives and death doulas are fitting into this larger holistic death care movement. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that we can get back to our community roots and yeah. community care, companion yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Because the system, while it's better than having no system, there are a lot of gaps in yeah. care. Yeah. And there's no, especially here in Nashville, there's not a lot of hope on that horizon. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about like what it's uh what it looks like like when someone calls? How does you how do you start your like I feel like people are just like help like how does how do you start? Yeah, <laughs> every single person that I serve is completely different, and that's mm-hmm. one of the harder parts of my work is that what one family needs is totally opposite of another family. Mm-hmm. So the last call I had, I had a client about three weeks ago and they booked an online consultation with me, I think to make sure I'm not scary. You know, like when you're thinking <laughs> yeah. about meeting a deaf midwife, like I think there's all kinds of ideas of <laughs> yeah. what that can look like. And so I just show up on the other side of Zoom and look mm. like a regular person, you know, and I think that gives a sense of like, okay, I can, maybe this can be someone kind of like a friend. And that's kind of the role that I take with families is that I've become like a friend to the family, someone who's walked this road quite a few times and can be there to support the family as they make this journey. Mm -hmm. So depending on what they're looking for is kind of where we're going to start. Sometimes I get hired six months before the death. Sometimes like with this last client, I was hired for the last five days of their mother's life. Mm. And so for that family, my job was to show up and hold space for each person. They had a really large family. They had about 30 people at the inpatient hospice house there as their loved one was dying. Mm. And so they would pull me aside. We'd go out on the porch one at a time. And Mm. I was like the designated non-griever. Yeah. Right. Like I was just the person to hold space while they processed all this stuff they were seeing. And I could pick up kind of those threads. So I kept hearing the similar repetition and what they were missing and looking for, right? They all wanted to have this moment of closure. They all wanted Mm -hmm. to have like this culminating moment. And that made me think, why do they not feel like they're having it already? Mm -hmm. Because it looked to me like they might be having it. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of started to shift us into how do we make this space feel sacred so that they feel like they're having the moment they're looking for, Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it really... I feel like I get the credit, but it was really the family. All of it was them. It was just me letting them each have the space to say what they need and risk, like repeat it back to them. Right. And then it was just a suggestion. Like, is there anything that we can do here to create a space that feels sacred and reverent and honor the fact that this body is preparing to die? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was this beautiful family. But a lot of times when I get called in, it's, not for the more beautiful deaths it's for the harder things Mm -hmm. it's people who are at the end of a long journey with dementia Mm. or people who have just had some kind of trauma um, and loss that's complicating the way that the family's able to communicate and work together Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes I get hired in things that feel like impossible situations and sometimes I get hired for like one-offs like I had someone (laughs) reach out to me and say I want to get buried in my backyard and I live in middle Tennessee can you do the research? Wow. And I was like, yeah, I think I would be the person that can do the research. Oh, wow. That's so much. Okay. Amazing. Mm -hmm. So cool. What a gift. When you first started, like you're saying, how did you get started? Sorry. Hold that. Remember that question. (laughs) Okay. 
I first got started by becoming a hospice volunteer. Okay. So maybe before that, I started volunteering at the church that I was going to. I was raised Catholic, and I was still attending a Catholic church. And I would bring communion to people who were dying Mm. as part of my ministry in Mm -hmm. the church. And so that kind of helped me see a lot of the gaps. Yeah. And then I started volunteering for hospice, and then I started to see all the gaps. (laughs) (laughs) And as I did my hospice work, I started hearing the word death doula. And it kind of was a nice blend for me. I'm very academic, and I love to research. I'm very intellectual, and I'm also a mom. And so I have a lot of, like, practical hands-on soothing skills Mm. and so this work really takes the two but I think for me I noticed that in spaces where people are dying I have a tendency to lean in when others lean out and to me that's usually a hallmark of some kind of calling into this work to say you got it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. okay what was your question yeah uh no that was wonderful um you said like when you come on the zoom and you become like a friend to the family That's so quick. I mean, that's obviously you have a gift, but like in the beginning, how did you navigate? How did you do that? Because I like, was it just from the beginning? It was like, boom, I can relate to these families or were there some awkward moments? It's just, (laughs) it's such an awesome skill that I'm like, how'd that get there? I think it's both. I think that first of all, it is one of my kind of gifts is that like my brother always says that having a conversation with me. He said, it's like hiking Machu Picchu and I'm the Sherpa. And like, you don't realize how high up you've gone until you stop. (laughs) Because I do have a tendency to go really deep, really fast. Um, And also, it's it's something that you practice. I have, so I take apprentices and teach them death midwifery. And I have an apprentice right now. And we were just talking about when he goes to the residential unit, the difference between knocking on the door and introducing yourself as a hospice volunteer and as a death doula Mm. or as a death midwife and like how do you have that conversation most of the time it really starts off with hi my name is jade would you like some companionship oh man and then from there usually they're like why would you want to sit next to me while my blank is dying Mm -hmm. and it's like i really want to support people in my community Mm -hmm. who are going through this because i've been there i know how it feels That's so, I have so many questions, (laughs) but you are, you're sitting in such tender moments and those memories are something that they will never forget. That, that is just the, it feels like a lot of responsibility to do that. And then, so that, I guess, wanting you to speak a little bit of how you experienced that, but then also speaking to because I have thought about wanting to do this Mm -hmm. and I just was like I don't know if I could mentally carry that because I I know what it's like working in trauma stuff and of like you lose these people yeah you know especially the ones that you may have built a relationship with their family and them yeah to where I don't know does it feel like you're just losing a little piece of yourself all the time or like Mm -hmm. I know for therapists we learn how to like create boundaries around that but it's still we're just human mm-hmm. and so I'm just yeah I think that's the hardest part of my work is that I'm always grieving yeah yeah and that's also the beautiful part of this work is that I think that grief is an invitation to expand and to deepen 
And you can't mm-hmm. hold a space for someone else that you can't occupy within yourself. Yeah. So for me, this work, as challenging as it is, it's really good for me to have the reminder to sit with my grief and yeah. to sit in my feelings, the hard ones. Mm-hmm. And that was a, that's been a real practice for me. Yeah. And it is a lot of responsibility. And I mess up all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not perfect. And I just, I think that the work for me, I try and always remember that death is calling me to do her work, mm-hmm. right? So how do I show up and be as clear a vessel for the wisdom of death to be the teacher, Yeah. right? So that's not mm-hmm. about me. Like, I don't want to have to shoulder these families' burdens. Mm-hmm. I want to let the power and the mystery and mm-hmm. the majesty of death mm-hmm. speak for itself. And a lot of times, my role with families is just to offer them a little confidence Because I really believe that we all have everything we need already within us to companion the people we love as they die. Mm -hmm. But we are not used to seeing death. We're Mm -hmm. not used to being around people who are aging or dying or sick. And so we feel insecure and worried. And that makes us not want to show up at all. Mm -hmm. And I think just having someone in the room who can (laughs) remind you that like what your gut's saying is what you should be doing. Yeah. 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 How do you, do you have any advice for how people can prepare for this so like my mom is sick right now and it was just like kind of a surprise and I feel like that happens with a lot of like people my age like all of a sudden your parents are sick and you're like oh shit they might die soon and like all of a sudden I'm the caretaker like and I'm having to in the moment process these emotions and back away and come you know um is there advice for people for kids or whatever uh, family members to prepare before that moment? I think you have been preparing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think your whole relationship has brought you here. I think that we are constantly living in a relationship with death and our own grief. And the more we can show up for it, the deeper that relationship can go. I mean, as far as the practical stuff goes, you know, those are hard conversations to have. They just are. And I know my dad has Parkinson's and liver cancer, so I... I understand that very well. Yeah. I think that there are tools. So the five wishes is a really good one. It's an online website. It helps you complete your advanced directives. Um, It helps you, it helps guide you through every step of the conversation. Sometimes all our loved ones need is an opening of the door, Mm -hmm. right? Just the initiation of what care do you need as you move to the next phase of your living right what Mm -hmm. does comfort look like for you what is peace for you how do you want me to care for you what is your expectation for how Mm -hmm. this will play out and things like the five wishes help you have those conversations and record it in a way that is legally binding so that in the event that you have to make difficult decisions you're a little bit more prepared I think sometimes the shock of what we embrace at end of life can be a little traumatic like all of a sudden we're thrust into these situations that we have not practiced right especially if we haven't seen our parents practice them yeah i think that's like a real gift like if you watched your mom take care of her mom Mm -hmm. you kind of have a model that you can base things on but if you don't have that i think it can actually be a little traumatic to try and find your footing Mm -hmm. in these situations Mm -hmm. and so having I mean, maybe for me, this is, I'm always like, have as many conversations as you can, right? However you can open the door, open it. Yeah. 
while respecting that sometimes people don't want to walk through. Yeah. You know, and you have to let them do it at their pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just like therapy. You can't force people to go, right? Like you can initiate the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then if they don't respond, you can keep initiating gently. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Amber, what was coming up for you if you mind sharing? Oh, just then when I was sobbing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I. <laughs> it's just interesting that. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm thinking about when you said that I've always been preparing, and I thought about that, and. Um, One of my thoughts was like, I'm sure to some extent, yes, I have. And I'd love for you to like elaborate on that. Um, I think one of my thoughts was like, um, you know, my mom is all I had. Like it was just me and her for a long time. And so all my future thoughts and planning was like, she's going to be here Mm -hmm. when I get this, when I do this. Like, and I just picture her like able and healthy And so I never, I don't know, I feel like just now I'm like, oh, she's going to (laughs) die. Like, uh, so I, I just feel kind of, I feel angry and shocked and I'm in denial too, because she's not, she is dying. It's not like, it's like, it's going to be a couple of days, but like, she's kind of not, I don't see a will to live really in her situation through like depression and other stuff and so I'm angry at that too Mm because I'm like no I have a plan you're supposed to be here forever Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I had envisioned it Mm -hmm. so I'm just in shock yeah 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 thanks for sharing that yeah I'm sorry going through that yeah uh yeah it sucks I'm grateful that I have my sister you know um who's just like really good at taking care of people she's like been when people pass she just shows up like is so good she has a gift in a way of just being like calm um and handling stuff so I'm grateful for her but I just I just didn't expect my mom to die is everyone gonna die I don't know I know I never know with science these days (laughs) yeah isn't that so scary (laughs) because the thing is is that death is such an invitation for us And to watch people die is to have an invitation to sit with our own death. Mm -hmm. Oof. Damn. I was going to ask, and I'm not familiar with the five wishes. It's definitely something I'm going to look into. Um, But would you say that your your own understanding of death and dying helps you go through that? Not just you yourself, but if you have a loved one. Like my dad died about a year and a half ago. Um, and it really forced me to, when he got sick, to, for, to try to understand that and why it didn't limit the, the pain, you know, of losing him. But I could understand it. Um, and just for knowing what I believe, it feels like I could still have like a spiritual energetic relationship mm-hmm. um, with my understanding of how I came about figuring that out for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like. Was that in that five wishes thing? <laughs> talking about understanding for yourself? Because it's a thing that people just don't talk about, and so it's hard for us to know our understanding. We just are 
you know, heads in the sand or avoiding yeah. thinking or talking about it. I think that grief is what calls us into death work. So I think that if we can look at our grief as something nutritious, as something that's fertile, right? Like compost, mm. like something that generates a part of us that's new, right? It, it grows us. And I think a lot of times in that growth is when we start to hear the call to either companion others or to build a relationship with death. And I really think they're one and the same. I think most people who are called to become death doulas or death midwives are first called to develop a relationship with death, just like what you're talking about, mm -hmm. to have a sense of comfort when in the presence of death. And that's something that you can't read your way to, you know, <laughs> yeah. I've tried. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think there, there is a lot of literature out there. And um, like right now I'm reading Pima Chodron. She wrote, just came out, how we live is how we die. Mm. And it's Buddhist. And her take is that every single moment is a continual transformation. We are constantly, every second, living through little deaths. We will never mm -hmm. again have this moment. Yeah. And these are opportunities for us to practice, right? We're practicing. Wow. We're practicing letting mm -hmm. go and surrendering yeah. and accepting and moving forward without fear. Mm -hmm. Because if we keep practicing these little deaths, mm -hmm. then when it's time for the big transformation, mm -hmm. we won't feel so completely yeah. like a deer in headlights. Yeah. That is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I know, I think so too. Oh my goodness. Like, like, yeah, it's like grief is a practice just like gratitude is. Mm -hmm. You know, it is it is a constant like letting go, shedding things, whether that's an, on an emotional level, mental level, but then physical with people, things, jobs. Friendships, like all kinds of things, are constant. Grief is a skill. Mm -hmm. Yes. That we need to practice. Yes. Yeah. It's a hard one to learn. It really is. Yeah. I really like that breaking it down, though, of like you go through it, you're going through it every day, mm -hmm. of making decisions, changing, being a different person, you know, just becoming mm -hmm. a, a different person. That's a it, form of accepting. Mm -hmm. I think it's accepting. For me, that's always mm -hmm. the hard part is that when I'm, I struggle with wanting to control, I want to control things that mm -hmm. makes me feel safe. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. I find that come up for me sometimes in my death work, if I'm mm -hmm. totally honest. Um, sometimes I find myself wanting to know what to expect and dying is always different. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of my griefs, so my grandmother, who I was really close to, she died all of a sudden. She wasn't sick. She was 70, and I dropped her off on a Friday, and on Tuesday she was dead. Mm. And I think that that was a big part of why I wanted to learn everything I could about death. I never wanted to be caught off guard by death again. Oh. Right? I just wanted to be able to detect it. <laughs> and I still can't. Like, my last client, they asked me, when do you think she'll die? And I get asked that a lot, mm. right? And I said, well, based on where she was five days ago and based on where she was three days ago, Based on where she was yesterday, here's what we can guess. But still, she died a lot sooner than I expected. Mm. And afterwards, I was like, how did I miss it? How am I still missing it? Like, well, all these years later. But for me, that is just me wanting to make sense. Me wanting to have that, like, solid footing to stand on. You know, it's not going to catch me off guard again, mm -hmm. right? But that's just me and my control. Yeah. And I think the practice for me is letting go of the control and just accepting that the next moment, whatever it looks like, is safe. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's so nice. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. Can you talk about how you went from like, 
the devastation of losing your grand granny unexpectedly and then saying things like death like the way you describe death i just see mm-hmm. this like beautiful like <laughs> you're like it's nourishment it's compost i'm like the way you view it now i'm like what a powerful like woman you know like you just see it in such a beautiful way how'd you go from like i'm sure you were just beside yourself yeah to yeah. seeing death how you do now yeah i think i spent a lot of time with death and thinking about death mm-hmm. yeah i mean i've had a lot of practice i think my 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 family i lost all of my grandparents and my great-grandparents between the ages of 17 and 22 Wow. So I had like a really hard college yeah. trial. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time I was studying philosophy. And so whenever I could put death onto my philosophical studies, I did. So if it was healthcare <laughs> ethics, it was like, we're going to study life right support. And the eth- right. <laughs> With everything. How can wow. I make this about death? And then um, when I was 22, Katrina hit and I'm from New Orleans and like everyone in my family lost their home. So on top of all the death, then there was all the loss. Mm. And then, of course, I am from New Orleans. And so there's just I mean, Mm -hmm. we're saturated in death and grief and celebrate it in a lot of ways. So I think a part of me has always kind of been thinking about this. Right. I like Mm -hmm. to sit at the feet of my elders. I love to be in conversation with people, especially those who have so much wisdom to offer. I love to be of service in that way. Mm-hmm. And also, I look at the fear as an invitation mm-hmm. because it does scare me. Yeah. And the first time I was with someone who died, I felt fear, mm-hmm. right? But I don't want to bring that fear energy into the dying spaces of others. So how can I sit with my fear, even though it's scary, and figure out where it's coming from and how I can breathe into it? right where is it in my body you know all the stuff mm-hmm. where is it in my body you know like how do i how do i decode this um and then practice that right just well, practice it over and over and over that's such mm-hmm. a cool thing to hear that i feel like you're uh we were just talking not too long ago about how like you go through crap to get to like these really cool beautiful places and there's no way around that mm-hmm. you know like you have this beautiful amazing calling and you don't just wake up and like i'm good at this it's like you go through the muck to get to the gold like mm-hmm. there's no way there's just no way around it there's no way around it. <laughs> it's wild i think that the muck is life yeah like i think that's it's a good teacher yeah I yeah think that's our humanity mm-hmm. you know and that's what connects us yes yeah do you ever go and do your job with families who someone has already passed and there's just a lot of like hurt in the family? I haven't been hired to do that, but I've done that as a volunteer. Um, I have spent a fair amount of time offering support as a volunteer for grief. I only offer grief support for families if I've companioned them because I'm not a grief expert mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't feel like i'm not a grief counselor sure? yeah <laughs> i feel like i'm comfortable most days with my own grief right? <laughs> and that can be real beneficial just to hold space for people but um yeah i have sat with people who have had some pretty hard traumatic experiences around death i think that's often a time that death doulas get called mm. it's not usually i mean i've had some really transcendent moments at the bedside of dying people but that's kind of rare. I think more often 
it might feel very ordinary and kind of hard. Mm -hmm. Damn. Yeah. Because how we live is how we die. Mm -hmm. And so if you drink Diet Coke and watch (laughs) football and, you know, gossip on the phone with your best friend to relax, then when you're dying, those are going to be the things that comfort you. So we're not going to be seeing them sipping hot tea and knitting and, (laughs) you know, spewing wisdom. Like if that's not how they live. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. So death can be very ordinary too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the isolation of living in this type of community where we are all afraid of death and grief Mm. can add to the overwhelm that families have at the end of life yeah and you do you find people expect the some kind of experience of like oh like calmness and Mm -hmm. i don't know like the the knitting create it i think the people Mm. who have that vision usually create it Mm. If they can bring the intention. And yeah. that's really the benefit of, a, of hiring a death doula or a death, death midwife. I think it allows people to see their own intention. Yeah. Right? Like, like mm-hmm. when you mentioned with the family, when you were like, they did the work, I just mm-hmm. offered up like, hey, how do we make this a sacred space? Mm-hmm. How did they make it a sacred space? I'm not, I haven't asked them if I could share oh, their okay. story. <laughs> I yeah. wish I had because they, their story is really beautiful. Um, but generally it's, in a death doula's toolkit to bring flameless candles and um, essential oils and um, whatever tools the family will be comforted by. So once again, if they never used a singing bowl in their life, that's Mm -hmm. not going to be comforting to them (laughs) as they're dying, right? Right. But if they did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, So creating a sacred space for me, and I do this a lot when I volunteer with hospice patients, right? I just walk into the room and I sit down and I match my breath to the breath of the person who's dying. Mm -hmm. So first, I always introduce myself to every single person, whether they are responsive or not, and ask for permission. May I step into your space? Of course, they don't usually say yes or no. It feels energetic. Um, And then I match my breath, and I can kind of see where they are in the dying process based on their inhales and exhales. And then I think about how I'm feeling, Mm -hmm. right? Is there a fluorescent overhead light that's irritating my eyes? Or is the volume on the TV too loud? Or is it stale in here and I want to open a window? Mm -hmm. You know, do I want to use candles, flameless candles, to remind the staff or the caregivers Mm -hmm. that this is a reverent moment, Mm -hmm. right? Like, how can we remind people that this process of this body preparing to die is sacred and Mm -hmm. reverent? Mm-hmm. right because i think especially people who are in the business of caring for dying bodies that can kind of get lost in the wash and i think the death doula that that part of sacred space creation i think that's a really good reminder just yeah. for everyone like mm-hmm. with that family it was they were all wanting this culminating moment and they were likely having it so how do we make the, f- the space feel as sacred as mm-hmm. they need it to be yeah. right mm-hmm. and then every time they walked in they were in the presence of sacredness oh, mm-hmm. they felt the shift, the felt, shift. And in fact somebody even wrote a note for the door that said like please enter gently oh mm-hmm. and i really i, lo- <sighs> I loved that that's yeah. so wonderful yeah yeah when that can happen it is so beautiful but even when it can't you know death is beautiful no matter how it looks it's i feel like there's this emergence of the idea of a good death i think you mentioned dying well I like dying well a little better, mm-hmm. but the idea of a good death for me is really tricky because no one in my family has ever had a good death. <laughs> no one. And so I have a lot of feelings about that. Mm-hmm. Like, is it our place to judge whether or not this is good? Yeah. You know what I mean? 
-hmm. Maybe this death is this person's death. This is how they lived. This is how they chose to die. Mm -hmm. And my job's not here to judge it, even if I can judge it and try to make it better. My job is to be here to companion a member of my community as they leave this earth. Wow. Right? Regardless of how it looks. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I always want to bring like (laughs) my best foot, you know, like I want to bring my best, my best self to every situation. Um, But I try to do it without judgment. That is so nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That is so nice. I mean, that is so nice. (laughs) It just makes me think of my mom again and her choices, how I can see that they're leading her towards. just waiting for that to, it makes me think of my mom again and how some of her choices are could be leading towards a sooner death and like not judging it is a yeah as a big thing of just being like you are choosing your life i can't make you live another life mm-hmm. and i shouldn't mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and it's really hard it's easier said than done girl yeah especially like for me i find that my grief is usually my triggers for judgment So if I'm carrying some kind of grief wound, like I'm thinking right now of like addiction issues, substance abuse, Mm -hmm. when I am in the presence of a client where they seem over medicated to me, Mm. all that judgment gets triggered. It's just triggering my grief. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by grief can be nutritious. It can be fertile it's telling me where i've got some stuff i need to work through Mm. it's pointing me right like hey uh right here this is the spot yeah yeah i think any of our triggers we can treat them like that anything that feels trigger is not bad we think we get triggered it's something really big and difficult or or bad that we're feeling but it's just we've had a response to something Mm -hmm. and that is a key to normally it's some external thing creating that but when we we look, there's a reason why it had the ability to get created and it's our own stuff. Yeah. And so grief is, I have found to, it's just a whole different ball game than <laughs> anything else, any of the other things we feel. And it, it has the ability to magnify things, the other things yeah. that are in there too. Um, yeah. There's so many types of grief. And yeah. so I think we think about our big G, like our big mm-hmm. G griefs, our mm-hmm. big losses but we're living in a world that is saturated in grief. I mean, I think right now collective grief is real yeah. high. In mm-hmm. fact, it's almost like we're having a collective trauma response mm-hmm. to the grief that we are living through. And then you add to that anticipatory grief, mm-hmm. the knowledge that you're mm-hmm. about to have a big grief, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the secondary grief and the, it's the ambiguous grief mm-hmm. and the disenfranchised grief. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many types of grief. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it can be, our triggers can definitely be an invitation in but grief is a hard thing to tend. I mean, it's a lifelong practice. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that you can think your way out of. I think it takes a lot of... <laughs> yeah. A lot of feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you going to say something? Um, <laughs> um, I'm curious about, like, if... Um, kind of the, I I don't know really the word mystical side comes up of like, um, (laughs) I don't want to ask if you believe in ghosts, but I do want to ask if you believe in ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Or how you're... I had a similar kind of question that popped up. What were you going to say? Well, just you're, you're in the moment that death arrives and seeing whatever that energetic shift of the 
my soul, spirit, whatever you want to word you want to put for it, but seeing this life transition. Mm -hmm. And I follow a, a death nurse mm -hmm. that goes into homes and she's like on like Instagram and she talks about some of this stuff. Is but, it Julie? Julie or Penny? Those are the two big ones. Hospice nurse Julie. Julie yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Julie. But she talks about she just she talks about some of the energetic stuff mm -hmm. that she witnesses and has become familiar with by witnessing those moments. So I'm just curious mm. what you if you want to share about any of that. I have not figured out what I believe yet. It feels like it's all over the place. <laughs> um, I absolutely can tap into a very mystical side of myself. Mm -hmm. But there's a little fear there for me. Yeah. I don't love that stuff. I'm you very, no, I'd much rather be in the pragmatic world. Oh, interesting. <laughs> makes sense. But when I did, so I did a nine month apprenticeship with a death midwife out of Atlanta. And she is really into mysticism. And so it pushed me in my apprenticeship with her to find that and make peace with it in myself. And especially when I was her apprentice, I did have a lot of mystical experiences. Um, I used to see death. So, and I don't, like, I'm very pragmatic. So I wonder if I'm personifying the energy that I'm feeling, right? But <laughs> I had a, I used to have visions of death and they were not scary. They mm -hmm. were of a kind of hooded figure that was in the corner sometimes when somebody was close to death. and. Now, I don't feel that as much. I haven't been working in the same realm with the esoteric stuff as I was mm -hmm. during the apprenticeship, but there's still a lot of energetic stuff that's happening. I feel like it's a very liminal space when someone is at that threshold between life and death, and they often exhibit things that are pretty mystical. People who are dying very often have visions throughout mm -hmm. the active dying phase. It's super common to hear them speaking of people who are dead as if they're right there in the yeah. room, mm -hmm. especially um, mothers, children, those types of like really close mm -hmm. relationships. Um, we often see people in the hospice house that are putting their arms up mm -hmm. um, like this. Mm. And I have a lot of um, experiences with people that had these beliefs that they were traveling or like, mm -hmm. it's like their brains are trying to make sense of the journey ahead, mm -hmm. which that in itself is kind of mystical. Mm -hmm. I had a client who had very advanced dementia and she was very afraid to die. And towards the end of her life, she was not sleeping. She didn't want to take any medication. She'd never taken a Tylenol in her life. She didn't wow. like medicine. And that makes it really tricky for hospice to help offer support. Pretty much the biggest tool in the hospice toolkit is pharmaceuticals. So if someone's refusing <laughs> pharmaceuticals, it gets really tricky. And so she had a lot of agitation. And one of the last conversations I had with her, she was on a train and she was going somewhere. She didn't know where she was going, but she'd been awake for like 36 hours wow. and her family really needed her to go to sleep so that they could go to sleep. And so finally I had the idea on my shift that uh, while they were resting, that maybe I could be with her on the train, <laughs> right? And so I sat beside her, and we just went for our train ride. I kind of rocked with her, and I just imagined that I was on the train. And then as I started to get really sleepy, I said, the conductor's coming. Mm. I think it's time for us to turn down the beds. It's time for us to lie down, mm. right? And she did. I mean, <laughs> for like 20 minutes, but she still, she lied down. And 
I think that that feeling of movement of uh-huh. journey of you know something right on the precipice like she was giving mm-hmm. me these clues yeah. you know mm-hmm. and I have a lot I feel like that's the most common way that I see kind of the mystical stuff is in mm-hmm. these conversations with people who are very close to death yeah they often um are seeing things that we're not seeing mm-hmm. and speaking to things that aren't there and I think that that's actually a phenomenon called visioning at end of life. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole book about it called Death is But a Dream. Oh, I love that. By Dr. Mm-hmm. Christopher Kerr is a hospice doctor, and he recorded the deathbed visions of hundreds of his patients. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as far as ghosts go, (laughs) (laughs) so I am from New Orleans. Yeah. So, um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't doubt it. I went one time, so I kind of believe in them. So on my honeymoon, my husband and I, we stayed at all haunted bed and breakfasts every night of our honeymoon. Sounds awful. Oh, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) And we never saw anything, even slightly supernatural, until. The last night I was very pregnant and I was taking a bath in the clawfoot tub and I kept seeing these like flashes of light like across the wall. And I like called my husband. I'm like, honey, you have to come see. I think it's finally <laughs> happening. And, he in, and he's like, oh, my God. And then we turn and we realize that there's a ghost tour outside of the window and they're shining no! their flashlights. <laughs> that is so young. It's finally happening. Uh, We're probably going to die by ghosts. Just turn back around and keep pretending, you know. <laughs> I took my children to stay at the Myrtles Plantation in St. Francisville, Louisiana for spring break. And I think they were like three, five, and six. <laughs> it didn't even cross my mind that this would be like slightly traumatic. <laughs> because to me, like I love that. If mm-hmm. I can if I can brush shoulders with what's on the other side, mm. I love that. That idea. sounds like you do love the mysticism. Mm-hmm. But I don't but I but I'm not I mean I'm not seeing a lot of ghosts. <laughs> Like, I just don't want the tangible. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I would not rule it out, but I haven't actually seen a ghost myself. Mm. So when you, I can't remember if you said fear in the beginning, but um, when I asked about mysticism, did you say that that kind of scares you? Yeah, a little. Why? I don't know. I guess we should dig into that. You wanna, <laughs> <laughs> you wanna give it a go, Melanie. <laughs> Well, whenever you said that, what I was thinking is you when you were talking earlier around like knowing something rises in you is a, an invitation to go deeper into. So mm-hmm. have you ever done that with this kind of whatever comes up around mysticism for you? Not not on the nose, not directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be a good invitation for me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I could. I have some ideas. I think it's kind of all linked up to me being raised. I was a cradle Catholic. And I think that sometimes it's hard for me to parse out the ritual and the ceremony and like the esoteric parts of the church from my own belief systems. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it might be kind of in that territory. Gotcha. Also, my great grandmother, Momonita, was born with a veil. It's a call. It's so if the amniotic sac is still in place over the person's face, it's supposed to signify that they will have visions throughout life, like a psychic ability. Cool. So she used to always say, I was born with a veil. (laughs) Yeah. And then she'd gossip. (laughs) (laughs) It was like how she legitimized the gossip. Um, That's hilarious. But the women in my family do have some predisposition to energies and 
I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm a little afraid of it because of how deep I think it could go if Ooh, I tapped in. Yeah, because you're right I'm, in the thick. Yeah. I am right in the thick. You're in the thick. <laughs> yes. And just the language that you use and the just the way you speak about things. And even when you walked in, when you mm-hmm. first got here, your energy just, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I've, I've had, <laughs> so I had like a, um, I've been trying to do more ancestor work. I think it's really important to my death work to invite my ancestors guidance Mm -hmm. and that I think sometimes I end up in deeper waters than I feel prepared to swim in. (laughs) And so recently, maybe last year I had like a bath all set up and I was doing kind of a meditation of ancestors. Then my grandfather showed up and started talking to me and I had like crystals and candles and, and I was in the bathtub and it just felt like, okay, I need some boundaries. <laughs> yeah. So I think I am curious, but I'm still just sticking one toe in at a time. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. You're a mystic. Yeah. <laughs> she is a mystic. <laughs> I think she was talking to you. No, I'm talking to you. Oh, me? I'm yeah, girl, you. no, you. I mean, her too. <laughs> All I'm of us here. Us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just the stuff that things, the, that you can just tap in your curious around the ancestor stuff to do meditation mm-hmm. things, you, your crystals and that <laughs> around. But the fact that you just offer the invitation and then it shows up because and that you can know that it's there and interact with it. It's like that's my grief practice. Right. I think you just have a different word for it. Maybe because yeah. like you were saying about building a relationship with your dad in his in this new phase. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like a, a new relationship now Mm -hmm. and for me that's a big part of how I tend to my grief is I invite my beloved dead to still visit me Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I try and do that too with the people that I've served so I have a little altar I guess I am pretty mystical (laughs) (laughs) but you guys have to understand that this uh work that I'm doing for my club I'm like the least mystical (laughs) of all of us Okay. I'm sure that's nice though. You show up in a way where people feel I think know. I am a little more approachable. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I think it's all needed. All types are Me needed. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. As many people, as many types of people as there are dying, we need those yes. types of death workers yeah. to serve them. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. there's some people that don't that may not be able to receive and support and openness from the real out there versus you make it very like tangible for them mm-hmm. to interact with and you word it and you meet them where they are yeah, yeah. With i try it. to because it's not yeah. that it's not there not happening if you don't talk about it you just mm-hmm. find ways to talk about it that makes it very palatable for people i do notice that people are even people who are very pragmatic they can be very sensitive to energies when someone's dying mm-hmm. and that does mm-hmm. seem like it comes up a lot in conversation yeah and i think you're exactly right like the goal is to meet people where they are and that can be one of the harder parts of my work like i had a client where when the they believed that when their loved one died, what was left was just the shell. Mm-hmm. And they didn't feel any need to honor the shell. Yeah. And for me, one of my favorite things to do when someone has died is to prepare the body for the funeral director. Mm-hmm. I really love to wash the body. Yeah. Not oh. all of it. Like, I'm not, I'm not a nurse, right? right. Mm-hmm. But... Just to bring some reverence mm-hmm. and some sacredness yeah. and to say thank you. Yeah. Because every time mm-hmm. I'm invited into a dying space, I learn and I grow so much. And mm-hmm. I like to give gratitude for that. 
and just to, you know, wash the hands and say, like, mm-hmm. thank you for holding mine or allowing mm-hmm. mine to hold yours. Like, wash the arm. Thank you mm-hmm. for all the ways that you supported people in this life. You know, wash the shoulders. Thank you mm-hmm. for all the things that you bared. Mm-hmm. Wash the eyes. You know, <laughs> thank you for seeing with love. And to me, there's such an act of closure in that. And, like, yeah. thanking the body and honoring it for the work that it's done. And then for me, also, I think I'm getting to look at the dead body. And it helps my mind like close the circle a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when someone dies, we all start to feel a little creeped out (laughs) and people tend to want to leave immediately. And like one of the biggest things that I wish I could just download in everyone's brain, if there was one little nugget of death doula wisdom, it would be that there's nothing urgent about death. Mm -hmm. So when someone dies, we do not have to do anything immediately. We can just sit. And that's so helpful to our own brains Mm -hmm. as they're going to have to make sense of all this that we're going through. And so when we get to wash the body and thank it, I think it allows a little closure in the mind. And it's, to me, a lot easier to process death than if we leave as soon as the person dies and then see them next when they've been embalmed and dressed up and look a little different <laughs> look, look yeah look as like a weird healthy version of them yeah. it's like my brain's like what do i do with this uh-huh. you know like, right I, yeah it's hard to wrap your brain around that is such a good yeah. drop of wisdom that's a really but sometimes families don't want that and so i have to accept that this mm-hmm. is their person this is their experience and it's not about me you know yeah. and that, that is one of the harder parts of the work mm-hmm. i think is being able to to put their needs first man yeah. yeah yeah there's a book called hello goodbye have you ever i've read? seen it yeah it's a book of rituals um for there's some for celebration there's some for loss and for grief and it's really good and i i it came into you know my life when my dad died and because i was just was like i have to figure out how to how do i move through this death because uh like the funeral he had was, it was a Christian funeral and that wasn't how I made sense of things anymore. And so there's a lot of, it talked about like, I was like, I read about the washing of the body and and those Mm -hmm. kind of things. And that sounds like a very beautiful thing to do, but there's also, there's just so many different rituals that you could do. There's some for pets. Mm -hmm. Um, It it, it just helps you move through and, and it gives really that sense of like, there is no, no rush with it that it's, a very important part, I think, of the grieving process to have. I was going to ask you where you thought the ritual was a part of this process because I think it's an, it's an important part of everything, um, no matter what what we're going through. Um, yeah. I think it's a foundation of death work. I try to start rituals as soon as I meet a person. And then, of course, they're very, I mean, I'm not like walking in like ritual time, yeah, <laughs> you know, but every time I enter into the space of someone who's dying, I wash my hands before and I wash my hands after. Mm-hmm. And as I'm doing it, I'm thinking like, may I leave my worries and my troubles behind? Yeah. May my hands be the hands that are here to do God's work, death's work, whatever mm-hmm. word I'm using. And then the same thing at the end, may I leave this here? I also like to go up, I introduce myself to the person, and I often place my hands on their feet. I like to have, if they are verbal and vocal and we're going to talk, then I'll shake their hand, right? Like, I'm just going to go touch their feet. But if they're non-responsive, I think the feet can feel really powerful energetically. Mm -hmm. 
And that can be a ritual. Every time I introduce myself into your space, I'm going to have the same introduction, Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to tell you my name. I'm going to speak very quietly. I'm going to ask for permission to enter your space. I'm going to shake your hand or I'm going to put my hands on your feet. Mm -hmm. I think just having those markers, that ritual, it brings a feeling of like safety and groundedness. Mm -hmm. Also for the family. Like I find that a lot of times families don't know how to touch their dying person yes they're scared they're going to hurt them they don't want to disturb them they don't really know and so i try and use a little touch just to show like it's okay if i do something that this person doesn't like i'll see a sign of it Mm -hmm. i my hands are almost always cold and so sometimes if i put my hand especially (laughs) on a little old lady's hand (laughs) and it's cold she'll flinch Mm -hmm. right so they give us signs that they're uncomfortable we can touch their bodies if they liked to be touched and having that ritual to kind of remind people like you know okay the death doula's here this is the sacred space this is the time that we've set aside to do this the designated space i think rituals can be really helpful for that also with the caregivers i feel like a thing i love to do when people enter when i enter into their space is ask if i can make myself a cup of tea mm-hmm. and then them too right mm-hmm. and then if nothing else nice. they sit down for a few mm-hmm. minutes and drink a cup of tea you know how i think intro- rituals introducing them can be super beneficial because I think when you're in those moments that liminal space it feels like times a blur I think rituals can be like anchors yes mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I remember I because a lot that book and it's I think we should put it in the comments for people to check out um but it it gives you so many different things and it was like I pulled part of like from Jewish tradition of having a candle mm-hmm. lit and I bought like candles that were the 24 hour mm-hmm. for that. And I would light the next one with the same candle. And I was like, I think I don't forget how many days they do. I think it was like seven days, but I was like, I'm not ready to be done with this. It, it became a thing of like my dad's spirit. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I can't let go of this. It can't go out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but I don't know how I want to keep doing this. I, I don't want to like be a year down the road and I still have to get this damn candle going. <laughs> Cause it would create anxiety if I woke up in the, cause I would do it in the morning first thing. And I was like, oh, no, what if it went out overnight? And then one day, I forgot to do it. Oh, well. And I got home, and I realized what happened. But by that point, because I think I only did it like 10 to 15 days. And I was like, okay, that was time then. Mm. But it was that just held the space in some weird way for just what I I wasn't ready Mm -hmm. to be done with feeling like he's he's still here. He hasn't gone yet. And it just creating a, a ritual like that, and it's not Jewish, but that is part of a culture I brought in because it just resonated and supported me in that moment. And so it really, that I love that book. It just gives you a lot of freedom mm-hmm. to just do whatever feels okay and comfortable and, and helpful. Yeah, it's nice. I have a similar ritual in that every time someone dies that I'm companioning, I light a candle and keep it lit for three days. Mm-hmm. And then after I blow out the candle, so the three days for me, sometimes like our world is always pushing towards productivity, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I need to remind myself that I have to give myself some rest and some spaciousness to absorb this like liminal space that I just went through. And so keeping, I keep a candle burning so that I have to stay close to home. Mm, That's really it. That's nice. Just to mark that for me, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I blow the candle out, but I often feel like the circle of connection with the family is still active and open. But at some point I usually get the idea that it's time to go find a stone 
And so my little ritual is that I go on a little hike. Sometimes it's just to my neighbor's yard. (laughs) 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 And I find a stone that reminds me of the person who died. And Mm -hmm. I write their name on it. I carry it close to my heart. And I like try and thank God for the fact that I was able to hold the space for this family Hmm. and the family for inviting me in. And then I write their name on it and put it on my altar. And I have a little pile of stones now. Wow. And so it's a ritual. Mm-hmm. And then for me, once I put that stone on that altar, it feels like the circle's been closed. Yeah. And then I can start to prepare myself for the next family that I serve. Wow. Because I can't keep these circles endlessly yeah. open. That's been something I've really had to navigate. Yeah. Wow. Um, you said that you, um, you've learned so much when you go into these rooms and have these experiences. What's one of your favorite mm-hmm. lessons that you learned or Oh my God, I have so many. Eee, that's awesome. I, f- I feel like, I mean, I've, I think I've learned something from every single person. Um, <laughs> my very first person I worked with after I did my first death doula training. So I did my first training in 2020, right before COVID. Wow. I flew to New York, <laughs> did my training. I came home and then like a week later, everything shut down. Wow. And I, but before I I saw this man, I was his hospice volunteer and he had short-term memory loss and he couldn't remember anything. And so I introduced myself, you know, hi, my name is Jade. I'm a death doula and I'm from a live hospice. And he was like, what in the hell is a death? What? (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, well, a doula is someone who companions people through their end of life journey. I would never have that conversation this way if I was doing it now. (laughs) So just to be clear, (laughs) I I really thought I could just lead with death doula at the time, and that would go over well. He's like, oh, shit. (laughs) But he had short-term memory loss, and so really the gift here was that I got to practice it. Like over and over and over. Like, how did that work? <laughs> and the 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 funniest part was that he also did not remember meeting anyone from hospice, and he didn't remember that what it meant to be on hospice. So I was Stop. also explaining that oh God. you're eligible for hospice support when you're in the last six months of your life. So he was like, "Are you for telling me I'm gonna <laughs> die?" And oh, you're like, "Yes, no. for the fifth time <laughs> for six months." You had to have that yeah. conversation. Well, so then the world shut down. And we talked on the phone twice a week. Um, All throughout COVID. Really confusing then. He's like, who am I talking to? He really did have a for after a while, sometimes he couldn't remember my name, Mm -hmm. but we we had a really beautiful relationship. He was very lonely. So I think Mm -hmm. it helped that he had someone who cared. Mm -hmm. Um, but then ultimately he was discharged from hospice. He didn't die. He was no longer declining. So then I had to have the same conversation in reverse. Stop. Oh, my God. Because he had a hard time understanding why I was being discharged. Just kidding. It's like, so wait. And this is what he said. So wait, you all came in here because you told me I was going to die. And now I'm not dying anymore. (laughs) And isn't there so much wisdom in that? Mm -hmm. Right? What do you mean? I mean, don't people know within themselves? Mm. Right? And here we are trying to take our medical knowledge and our projections and our forecasts and tell people what's about to happen to them. Not start by asking them, knowing everything you know, everything you feel, what do you think is going to happen next? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the, the mindset has such an impact, I think. on. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine, I'm just be curious if someone who ha- is not aware that that's happening is a gift, yeah. honestly, in to... Because what we go into mentally when we know that's coming, 
it's it's not helping mm-hmm. the the body. So I, I'm wondering, like, that or maybe could, it is. I don't know. I'm I'm just thinking that I wonder if our bodies know how to die. Mm-hmm. It's our minds that have forgotten. Right. Like we don't practice it. We don't even see examples of real death on TV. Right. Like you see examples of like real birth, like birth looks pretty close. Mm-hmm. Like it mm-hmm. used to be kind of where you'd be like, that's not what it looks like. But yeah. I've seen some pretty realistic looking births on TV lately, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we don't do that for death. Mm-hmm. We don't practice being around death. We don't know what natural death looks like. We feel super uncomfortable, but I think our bodies know it's our minds that aren't quite catching up. So I wonder if maybe the dying process if we can bring awareness to the sacredness and the necessity of Mm -hmm. what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if that's a gift to the person who's dying, you know, and to the people who are lucky enough to be able to watch this wisdom transfer Mm -hmm. person to person, you know, how do you get to be around death more? You can volunteer at a local hospice. Okay. Thank you. Go be their comedy relief. Yeah. Make them laugh. I mean, that would be fun. That would be fun. And a lot of the times with hospice, so if you were the volunteer coordinator for this area is great. You would love her. And um they you can go see people in their homes. So the hospice house is actually really close to you. People are only there for an average of 15 days. So they're very much at the end of life. Wow. Whereas people in their homes, you're going to have access to them much sooner. So people don't usually qualify for hospice support until they're in their last six months unless they have dementia. Mm. Um, but that's a great place to build relationships, especially if you're funny. Right? Yeah. yeah. That we would be go fun. together. That would be fun. We volunteer and go. I'll go with you. Oh, my gosh. I'm, it's, it makes me very nervous, but that I should do that then. If it makes me nervous. <laughs> it's, a, it's a reverence thing, I think. The nervousness is like mm-hmm. of knowing what's going on. You know? Yeah. Because you care. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But, you know, as all the people that I volunteered with who were in their homes, I was never present for one of their deaths. So if you want to volunteer with hospice and you're volunteering with people who are in their own homes, that might be an easier introduction than say, mm. going to the residential unit. I think long-term care facilities can always use volunteers too. You know, yeah. nursing homes. Yeah. 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 People are really People just lonely. sit in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just have a couple more questions yes. and then I'm going to let you go live your life. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I could talk to you for years. Uh-huh. Um, uh, something that I wanted to ask is, do you have like a, like when people call you, do you have like a how do I say this? Like a scale of where you're like, they have to be definitely almost passing or do you just, <laughs> well, how, how dead are they? You know, <laughs> or will you just go? Well, actually the less dead, the better, <laughs> the more runway we have, right? Like, the goal I think is to start building relationships early. Because if I can meet people before they're in these like really stressful states, we can actually have a foundation of a relationship and I can really be of service to a family. That is so nice. So even if like that person gets better and then you come back and meet them later. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is so lovely. In fact, a lot of my hospice patients, I don't know why um, (laughs) they get discharged. (laughs) 
I have like you're this, healing. You're healing. <laughs> I, don't, I really don't think it's me. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, a lot of times the work that we do might be enough for now, mm-hmm. right? So anytime somebody's thinking about hiring a death doula, I feel like that's a pretty good indicator <laughs> that it might be helpful, right? Yeah. But some may not know that that is what's happening. And so if, say, someone got diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. and they were told it could be six months to a year or more, mm-hmm. would that be, like, my brain? I'm like, all right. We need a death doula as soon as we get the diagnosis. Like, mm-hmm. we are going to go through this and rock this process. Mm-hmm. Is that the time where you're like, that would be great. wait until you get a little, no. little long No, down the I road. think the truth is that, so those five wishes that I was talking about, that's a very basic advanced care plan. Mm-hmm. Most death doulas can assist you in writing a full advanced care plan that's going to have all of your comfort and care wishes. Mm-hmm. Every single one of us should have that, particularly if we have children, mm. right? Otherwise, who knows how you want your children to be raised? Mm-hmm. You know, so I think you should be having the conversation pretty mm-hmm. early, building the yeah. relationship. I think at the point of diagnosis, it gets really helpful to check in because a lot of times doctors are not forthcoming about the symptoms of the treatments. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the hardest deaths that I've ever witnessed have been because of the side effects of the treatments not actually the natural disease that the Mm -hmm. person is dying from. Mm -hmm. So I think having someone who can help you research and understand what your diagnosis is, Mm -hmm. what the treatment options are, and what the side effects of those treatment options are, and what your wishes are for your care. So Mm -hmm. if autonomy is most important to you, Mm -hmm. or if, you know, however you describe dignity, if like Mm -hmm. being able to be verbal is super important to you, like having those conversations while looking at the symptoms and the side effects of the treatments Mm -hmm. can be really helpful just to know like where your lines are. And I think a lot of times we think doctors or nurses or do that and they don't, they don't. I mean, they, their job is to keep you alive right? Mm -hmm. and they will Mm -hmm. keep giving you the next treatment, the next treatment, the next treatment. I think there are some unicorns out there and I think Mm -hmm. there's also a trend especially like in oncology and those types of of nursing and medicine but I think for the most part they I mean their job is to keep you alive yeah Mm -hmm. and when they can't when there's no more treatments that can be offered then they will refer out to palliative care and even then sometimes people don't realize how close to death they are Mm -hmm. yeah you know I've had families where no one told them Mm that it takes within six months to even qualify for hospice. Mm-hmm. You know, people, I feel like, have a right to know. Yeah. And I think all of us, for the most part, want to. Mm-hmm. I mean, there might be a few, there might be some exceptions to that. But I think um, the sooner that you get in touch with a death doula when you're on, when you have a diagnosis, the more integrity your dying process is going to have for you Mm -hmm. because you are going to be thinking about what your values are Mm -hmm. and having conversations about whether or not the decisions you make are in attunement with your integrity yeah and then I think of course the actual work of companioning we call it vigil work so when someone's in the active dying phase or the last few hours maybe days of their life we call that a vigil that's what most people think of with death doula work Mm -hmm. but that's only as um, the role of the death doula is only going to be as valuable as her relationship with the family, right? Yes. So if I go, recently I did, um, I, was, I did part of the volunteer companion program. So a person had no family here in Nashville and was dying, actively dying. And I volunteered to keep vigil. 
there was so few things I could do because I don't know what her values are. So mm. I can't play a song. Like I, I couldn't play a Christian hymn because what if she's not Christian? I, I couldn't play, you know, a certain song. What if that was traumatic for her? Like right. I couldn't say any prayers. I wasn't sure what book to read. None of it was recorded. So that makes it really tricky. That's why I think having that relationship with the family where you know, like, especially if I get to work with the family, say six months before the person becomes nonverbal or non-responsive, I know what kind of tea they like. I know mm. what their favorite blanket is. I know what mm. their favorite scents are. I know that they like to see the cardinal in the morning and I can mm. say that to them when I sit down to talk, right? Mm. So like building that relationship is really important. And also it helps the people who are going to care for the person who's dying have that designated space to process what they're feeling mm. and to take time out to care for themselves so that they can better care for their loved one. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's great. I love that. Cause I feel mm -hmm. like some people are like, Oh, like last minute, but mm -hmm. that was a wonderful answer. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have any more? I don't think so. No, no, I'm sure I will later. I know. I'll definitely be reaching out. Yeah. To you. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just two more questions. Yes. Uh, one is what do you do for yourself where you're like, Oh, this is my thing. Like this just rejuvenates you. I read. Oh, I love books too. I read a lot and I write, I read and write. Yeah. I think that's my thing. Mm -hmm. And actually I've been trying. So as I mentioned, I have apprentices. I learned so much from these apprentices, but my last apprentice, he was with me with a client and we had a really beautiful ceremony. The family put together this really beautiful ceremony and we were able to take a part in it. And afterwards I asked, you know, how are you doing? You're processing. And you know, he said, I'm okay. How are you? And I was like, I'm not letting myself feel yet. You know, it was a lot. It was a lot. It was beautiful, but it was a lot. And he said, with one hand, with your dominant hand, write what you're thinking. Like, write your grown-up self thinking all your thoughts. Just get mm -hmm. it all out. Mm -hmm. And with your non-dominant hand, be your inner child and write what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to write with that non-dominant hand that it comes out really simple. I am sad. Mm -hmm. I am scared. Yeah. I am mad. And I thought that was really helpful. So I think for me, a lot of my thing, the thing I'm most proud of, the thing I love to do, um, the thing I like to practice, the mm -hmm. way I tend my grief tends to be writing, That's reading wonderful. and writing. I love that. Mm -hmm. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, where can people find you? Your socials, your... <laughs> yes, <laughs> you can say that so my in-person death midwifery practice is called farewell fellowship and you can find out everything you want to know about that at www.farewellfellowship.com i also have a part of my business that focuses on death care education on building communities that can mm -hmm. normalize conversations about death and grief on mm -hmm. doing things like this on reviewing books that's also where my apprenticeship is housed and all of my workshops and mm -hmm. that's the farewell library on instagram and i will be hosting a podcast um, it'll come out in january it's called exit interview and it can be found on bevival.com bevival is a death literacy and grief awareness content platform what how do you spell that it's being plus revival, bevival, B-E-V-I-V-A-L. I love it. Yeah. You are a wonderful human. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad that we came across each other, that we met. Yeah, yes. Me too. Yeah, I, this has been really nice. Thank you. I love you. I, love <laughs> I, do, you I do so much. <laughs> well, that was easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks thank for you. being here. Thank you. Yeah. It's great. 
Thank you for listening to I'm Fine, It's Fine podcast. My name is Amber Autry. I'm a comedian based here in Nashville and internationally touring. You can find me on all platforms at Amber Autry Comedy. And I am Melanie Reese. I'm a trauma therapist here in Nashville. You can find me across all platforms at Trauma Therapy Nashville. We really appreciate you listening so much. And if you want to give a little extra for free, make sure you're liking, subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing with your friends, talking about it to literally everyone you see. Because it helps so much, and we're so grateful for the extra effort. And if you like what you're hearing and you want some bonus material, that includes interviews with other practitioners and the, all the juicy stuff that Amber and I talk about that doesn't go into the normal podcast. Um, we'd love to have you subscribe. You can find the link in our bio, and $5 a month, you can do it. Thank you. Thanks.